So halfway through grad school, uh, I took a semester off to move to Statesboro, Georgia, and get married. Uh, For the first three months, while Sherry was finishing up student teaching, uh, I was uh, working at a sawmill. And then, um, at that point, I got hired by a couple guys that were members of the church that we were attending. Uh, Brian and Tim, they had a small construction company. Uh, good-natured guys, and I think I was a mercy hire. I had very few construction skills. They called me Yankee and gave me the worst jobs there, you know, putting insulation in attics in, you know, in, in, in the south part of Georgia in August, you know, where it's 180 degrees. But anyway, um, both Brian and Tim were pretty much out of um, central casting for the, the deep south construction worker, especially Brian. Um, he uh, had a, you know, had a strong southern accent, drove a pickup truck with a gun rack. Uh, his idea of dressing up for church was putting a nice belt on with his jeans. Uh, but they were good-natured guys, and, uh, and they loved to hunt and fish. And so on many mornings, uh, we, would, we would meet every morning at 7 o'clock at Snooky's for breakfast, and then we'd get our assignment, and we'd head out to, uh, to, to work. But most mornings, they had been uh, in a deer stand at 4 a.m., or they'd been out fishing. Uh, they, so they would, they would be hunting or fishing from 4 to 6, 6.30, and then they'd drive in, and we'd meet for breakfast, and then we'd, we'd go out. So, so uh, I would often ask them at breakfast, I'd say, so... How was, you know, how was hunting? How was, how was fishing? And uh, Brian would always respond. He'd say, well, Mike, or well, Yankee, we had us a time. Or we had us a time. Or it was always, it was always, we had us a time. And I had to sort of listen for the inflection to figure out if they had a good time or a bad time or a crazy time. But if I didn't say anything, uh, you know, and I, I was tempted to say, you know, there are such a thing as adjectives. Like you could, you could tell me more here. But if I waited, Brian would eventually uh, sort of give some backdrop and he usually he was making fun of Tim, you know. Turns out, turns out Tim doesn't know how to tie a lure or turns out Tim fell out of the, the tree stand or Tim done missed his shot. The buck came up and kissed the end of the gun. And still, somehow, when he pulled the trigger, he, he, the deer ran away just scot-free. So anyway, I thought about them. I thought especially about Brian because it occurs to me that over the last year, we have had us a time. Like, we have had a significant time. It's been quite a year, and it's still going. So about nine months ago, I started to read about the resurrection. Uh, I I did this for a few reasons. First of all, because we were having us a time, and because there was a little bit more noise and stress in the system, and I was looking for encouragement, I wanted to read something that would provide hope. Secondly, uh, some new books had come out on the resurrection. In particular, this one was making the news. It's about 800 pages. And I'd read um, a review where uh, uh, the reviewer, who I think very highly of, said that when he finished this book, he cried. 
he said it was so powerful and so assuring and so moving that when he finished the book, he cried. So I was very interested in reading the book. Now, for the record, uh, I, I didn't cry. But for the record, I also haven't finished the book. Uh, thankfully, there were other books that were new that were out that were shorter. And so I started to read uh, about the resurrection. The third reason I decided to, um, uh, to read about the resurrection is because uh, a year ago, even more than a year ago, I had pulled out my resurrection file. So this is... Uh, this is, this is articles, mostly it's talks that I'd given on the resurrection that I'd saved over, you know, 35 years between speaking on college campuses and preaching and other sort of settings. I, I realized I probably had, had talked about the resurrection 30 times or more. But it turns out when I looked at this, and again, this was over a year ago, when I looked at this, I said, you know what, I haven't. I haven't given 30 different talks on the resurrection. I've given the same talk 30 different ways. And in particular, I, I sort of come at things through the lens of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which is this passage that was sort of uh, illustrated for us already uh, this morning. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes the case that, look, if, if Jesus rose from the dead, like, if the guy defeated death, if he was seriously dead for a few days and then came back to life, as he promised he was, then we got to sit up and pay attention. And if he didn't, then why would we pay attention? I mean, that's, that's sort of the gist of 1 Corinthians 15. There's more there, to be sure. But that's what Paul is saying. So for me, everything had always pivoted around the resurrection. Now, to be perfectly fair, uh, there's, there's more to what goes into 1 Corinthians 15 than just the resurrection. Because it's not that I'm claiming to rise from the dead or you're claiming to rise from the dead. It's Jesus. So we've got to have this whole Jesus context. Uh, and, and when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the most influential person who's ever lived in the history of the world. And we're talking about the person who gave us the greatest ethical system that we have. And we're talking about the person who started the church, which has become not just the oldest, but now the, the largest and the most uh, globally dispersed and the most ethnically diverse organization on the planet. And when you realize that, uh, that, that, that it's Jesus who is making the claims or about whom the claims are being made that he rose from the dead. Jesus, the one who, who inspired those who started hospitals and orphanages and women's care shelters and higher education and, and human rights. It's Jesus is the one who has inspired more artists and more authors and more philanthropists. We're not talking about just about anybody. We're talking about Jesus. And that, that changes the way we look at 1 Corinthians 15. So we're in this series uh, on the seven I am passages that we find in John's gospel, where Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd, right? All of these. And so I had uh, given the introductory talk on not one of those seven, but, but out of John 8, Jesus saying, I am the I am. Uh, I, he was claiming the, the covenant name of God, Exodus chapter 3, the, 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 the name that God had given to Moses. And I said, look, this is, 
This is a shocking statement. You cannot make a bigger claim than what Jesus is making here. And most people don't get that. Most people, when they think of Jesus, they think of his humility. They think of his kindness. They think of his service. They think of the way that he washes the feet of people. They think of Jesus as being humble. They don't think of Jesus making the most outrageous claims that anyone at any time could ever make. And this claim, I am the I am, before Abraham was, I am, this is the greatest claim he's saying, I, I am eternal, I am the creator of everything everywhere, I, am the, I will be the ultimate judge of all of humanity, I am the one to whom every knee will bow. He's, he's making the biggest claims that could possibly be made. And we get a similar kind of claim being made by Jesus in, uh, in the passage that comes up where, where he says, I am the resurrection uh, and the life. So it's in John 11. Jesus and his, and his followers, the disciples, have been uh, heading to visit uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Jesus knows <laughs> that Lazarus uh, has died. He's actually waited until Lazarus has died to stage his entrance. So when he gets there, he ends up in this conversation with Martha, and she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she says, well, I know he's going to rise again. He's going to rise again at the resurrection, you know, when everybody rises, is sort of a, this Jewish idea. And uh, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. So he makes another one of these just crazy, outlandish kinds of statements. Who makes a statement like this? I am the resurrection, right? I am life. Uh, so look, my point is that um, every time I have spoken on the resurrection, I've sort of come at the, this from the vantage point of saying, this is a passage that, that, that ought to lead people who have not put their faith in Christ to slow down and pay attention because it's a really big claim. And, and after all, when you realize that the one who is making this claim has lived this most extraordinary life, and when you realize that he fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and when you realize that he has the biggest impact on those that are closest to him, who actually got to see how he lived 24-7, and when you realize that the people that came to believe that he was God were the Jews who were the last people on the planet who would believe, uh, that, that God would have incarnated himself. They, they had no concept of the Trinity, and they, they believed that there's one God. This is part of their daily creed. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's one God, and that God is in heaven, and he's removed, and I can't approach him. And they would say that, and they would also say, and this guy is God, and I haven't been able to figure out how to reconcile that. When you realize that the person that we're talking about said that he was going to rise from the dead, in Mark chapter 16, uh, after, shortly after Jesus is, has, uh, has asked the disciples who they think, who everybody else says he is, and then they say, who do you think I am? And, and Peter says, you are, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And he says, Peter, you got that answer from somebody else because you're not smart enough to know that. But yes, in fact, I am. And then he says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples 
that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Like, when you realize, <laughs> when you realize who we're talking about rising from the dead, when you realize that, that he had said he was going to do it, so the Romans had placed guards at his tomb to make sure that nobody bothered it. When you realize that even Christ's enemies will admit that the tomb is empty, and that even, even secular historians will admit that the tomb ends up empty, and it's from the empty tomb that the Christian faith is launched. And when you realize that the Bible revolves around the crucifixion and resurrection, everything before it is pointing towards it, everything after it is pointing back to it. When you realize that all the sermons in the book of Acts are about the resurrection, all the early church sermons are about the resurrection, with the exception of Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is giving the sermon, but he doesn't finish the sermon because he's put to death. But Jesus, the risen Christ, appears in that sermon. When you realize all these things, and when you realize that it's not, uh, we're not talking about me rising from the dead or you rising from the dead, we're talking about the most amazing person ever who claims to be God, who said he was going to rise from the dead, when we're talking about him rising from the dead, then I have always argued that uh, there is compelling reason for you to slow down and take another look, especially since the stakes are so high. What he is offering is to give eternal life. What he is offering is forgiveness of sins and life eternal. You're never going to get a better offer than this. And so every time I talk about the resurrection, I have always gone back to the same point. But not today. So last year I started reading about the resurrection because I, I thought... I need to not speak specifically to those who don't believe. I probably ought to talk to those who do believe, especially since this year uh, we're having us a time. And some of you have been knocked down and some of you maybe need some encouragement. And so I want to I wanna just, there, there's a number of things that I could say I want to focus on too. I, I, I want to, <laughs> I sort of framed this uh, what has the resurrection done for you lately? And again, I, was, I, I framed it that way to think, um, so what would, if, if people think of the resurrection as sort of being uh, this incredible outreach message or this incredible apologetic argument, uh, I wanted to say, no, let's, let's set that aside for a bit. And if you're a Christian, what has the resurrection done for you lately? Which actually led me to think, not the first one, but it led me to think of, uh, of that Monty Python sketch where, uh, where there's a bunch, of, you know, a bunch of guys in the sketch and they're, they're first century Jews and, uh, and they're complaining about the Romans. And John Cleese is the, the leader and he is, he is sort of trying to get the crowd whipped up uh, to, to agree that they're going to go over, they're going to go overthrow the Roman Empire. And he says, you know, we're sick and tired of being, you know, dominated by the Romans. We're going to tell them they've got two days to dismantle their empire, which is laughable in itself because it's practically the whole known world. And if, if, if they've got to do this because we're sick and tired. Uh, and what, is, what have the Romans done for us lately? And everybody's yelling and cheering. What have the Romans done for us lately? And, and everybody's yelling and cheering. And, and then uh, it's quiet after the cheering. And one guy says, 
Well, there's the aqueducts. And Cleese says, what? He goes, you asked, what have the Romans done for us? There's the aqueducts. I like running water. And he goes, well, of course, the aqueducts, yes. But, but other than the aqueducts, what have the Romans done for us lately? And uh, everybody, everybody sort of cheers again. And then one guy says, well, there's peace. And he goes, what? He goes, well, well there's, there's peace. We've had peace our whole lives. And he goes, well, of course you've had peace. But, but, but other than the aqueducts and other than peace, what have you had? And then, you know, somebody says, there's the roads. And, you know, then somebody else says, irrigation. And then, you know, they just go down this list uh, of things that the Roman Empire provided. So I sort of, I, I could, we could look at a whole bunch of things that the resurrection has done for us. I want us to think about two that the resurrection has provided. The first one is it's given us a receipt. So in Romans, this is written by the Apostle Paul, we read about Jesus that he was delivered over to death for our sins. So the Good Friday, crucifixion, he dies in our place, he's our sacrifice. Delivered over to death for our sins and raised for our justification. So justification is a a theological term for a legal concept, it means that we are declared to be innocent. And so uh, what we are getting here is, is a bit of a receipt. So the, the, the inner workings of the Trinity are mysterious, and the, the workings of the atonement of our actually being forgiven and, and then given the, uh, the righteousness of Christ— the workings of the atonement through the crucifixion and resurrection, this is all pretty deep stuff. Um, so I, I don't want to try and significantly unpack this other than to say that Christ was raised for our justification. And there's a sense in which we can think of this as, as that it's confirmation. That, that How do we know that Jesus died for my sins? He said he was going to do it and then he rose again, having said that he would. And so I can trust him. He keeps his word. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a great source of confirmation. If you buy something at Costco, you know <laughs> that you have to keep your receipt because they're going to ask to see the receipt before you can get out. But the receipt is proof that you have paid. So the, the, the resurrection was a receipt. And by the way, not simply uh, a receipt um, for everybody, as much as it is a receipt perhaps for those of you who need some encouragement and reassurance. There are times when we get knocked down. There are times when we find ourselves uh, having a time. And some of you I know uh, are going through that this year for all kinds of reasons. And so you've, you've been stressed, you've been knocked down, uh, and you may find yourself uh, saying, God, what, what's going on? Or perhaps you have uh, moved even to the point of saying, God, are you there? Because this is not playing out like I thought. Now, I, I have been very open uh, through the years about the fact that I have... have struggled, a little bit of a cynic or a skeptic, and so I, I've always had issues of doubt in the back of my mind, not significant uh, recently, but um, when that happens, when I sort of find myself a little bit um, unsettled, and I go back and say, what do I actually know for sure? 
And one of the things that I do is I, I go back to Jesus and to who he is and what he did and issues like the resurrection. So when I first came um, to, to Christ, this illustration was popular. So it's a train, obviously, and you've got uh, an engine, a coal car, and a caboose. And the engine is, is uh, fact, uh, faith, and feeling. And so what, what it's looking at is the idea that, uh, that facts are driving things. And that I've got to have faith in, uh, I've got to have faith in the facts, in the evidence. And then I've also got feelings back here. And feelings, uh, that looks like they're misspelled, but they're not. I, I can see you can't, that this actually is an I, not an L. I was like, what are we looking at? So fact, faith, and feelings. Feelings, this sort of gave the suggestion to me when I looked at it, that feelings were not important. But in fact, I've come to decide that feelings are a lot more important than I first realized. But we've got to let our faith rest on the evidence and our faith rest on things that we can be certain about. So there are days that I don't feel deeply connected to God. Perhaps that's you right now. But I go back to the things that I know and Jesus and his life and, and the beauty of Jesus and the way he fulfills prophecy and the things that he did. There's nobody like Jesus and the evidence for the resurrection is quite profound. The second thing that we get out of the resurrection is a way to deal with the problem of death. Leo Tolstoy, uh, the great Russian novelist, author of uh, Anna Karenina, War and Peace, and some other things, uh, Tolstoy uh, rejected the faith that he grew up with uh, when he was uh, a young man and initially pursues uh, a wildlife in, um, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, you know, drinking, partying, sleeping around. Uh, he went down that path for quite a while and then decided at one point that it wasn't working. He had no peace. He had no joy. So he moved on. He decided that what he needed was money. And he had actually inherited a fair bit of money, but he decides he wants to make money. And so he sets out and he actually makes, through his writings, he makes a lot of money but he discovers that that hasn't given him peace. So uh, he sets out and decides that what he wants is uh, sort of uh, fame or notoriety. And so the Encyclopedia Britannica, if you look up Leo Tolstoy, they'll say that he is one of the two or three greatest novelists of all time. But that didn't do it for him. So he decides that, that peace and joy and contentment is going to come through a family. So he marries in 1862. He and his wife have 13 children, which I would suggest leads you to believe he gave the family thing a real serious try there. Uh, he still does not have the peace that he's after. And he says, there's nothing in my life that isn't going to be taken away by death. And, uh, and that's going to lead him to the point of actually making a, a commitment to faith. So he framed the problem of death in terms of it taking away all meaning. Other people face a different problem with death. Uh, there are a lot of people that, that uh, are so scared of death that they simply deny it. Uh, and there's a lot of denial of death 
uh, in, this, in this culture. There's a lot of people who simply uh, won't have conversations about it. It's not, it's not just us, by the way. Uh, the Romans, back in the Roman Empire, um, they did not want to think about death. And so uh, they had their slaves dig out these catacombs, dig out caves, and they buried bodies. They didn't want to see cemeteries. They didn't want to see any reminder of death. And, and the, these caves, these underground caves where they would bury bodies, this is where the early church met when it was illegal to be a Christian because they knew the Romans wouldn't go down there because the Romans had such an aversion to thinking about death. Um, I know people who will leave the room if somebody mentions death. I know people who are adults in their 60s and 70s who have never been to a funeral, don't want to go to a funeral. I was talking to a pastor uh, a little while ago who said that uh, he thinks the number one emotion, the number one sort of vibe at a funeral recently has been embarrassment, like this is a limitation. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of people that just have a real problem with, uh, with death and they're avoiding funerals. Other people actually have gone in a, a little bit different direction today. They have recognized, you know, maybe a little bit Freudian in their orientation and have recognized that if you fear something, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shape you, it's going to manifest itself in your dreams or in unconscious motivation and other things. So you've got to deal with it. You can't avoid things. You can't deny things. Those things find ways of, of presenting themselves. So there's this whole movement that has said death is nothing to be feared. Death is natural. Death is a friend. Death is, uh, death is just part of life. So I want to say to you, <laughs> no, that's a lie. Death is not natural. Death is not a part of life. Death is an enemy. That's what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, when Jesus was at Lazarus' funeral, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is the passage where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Then he goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead for four days. He knew he was going to do this. He still weeps at the funeral because death is ugly. Death is, death is, uh, is an enemy. When my dad passed away, as in, in, in one sense, in his 80s, as, as almost as good as it can get. He's at peace with God. He's at peace with his family and friends. He, he has cancer. He dies very peacefully. Um, there's a sense in which it doesn't get a whole lot easier than it was for, for him. And yet at the same time, I would say uh, it was ugly. And he was reduced to, to being a shell of who he was. And what we find in Scripture is that death is our enemy. But, but Scripture goes on, and it doesn't just say that death is our enemy. It says death is a defeated enemy. So, <clears throat> if you have been here, you may have noticed that I have never used poetry in a sermon. I was actually thinking uh, a few months back, I thought, wow, I may be, uh, I may go 40 years in ministry and be the, be the one guy who goes 40 years delivering sermons and never cites a poem. But I'm going to, no, it ends, it ends today. I want to quote, this is a George Herbert poem. He's a 17th century uh, writer, pastor, and uh, he, he sets up a little duel between Christian and death. So the Christian says, alas, poor death. Where is thy glory? Where is thy, uh, thy famous force, thy ancient sting? Okay, so he's 
1 Corinthians 15. Death responds, alas, poor mortal, void of story. Go spell and read how I have killed thy king, the king being Jesus. Christian says, poor death. He's mocking. This is smack talk. Christian is mocking death, taunting death. Poor death. And who was hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. You went after Jesus. He rose from the dead. You lost. Death says, let losers talk, yet thou shalt die. These arms shall crush thee. And Christian says, spare not. Do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worst that thou shalt be no more. So, look. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 is that death has already been, been defeated. And what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15 is that one day, not only will death, that has been defeated by Jesus Christ in his resurrection, not only has death been defeated, it will be destroyed. Men and women, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It gives every Christ follower the ability to taunt death. Let death do its worst. It is simply a dark tunnel to glory. There is nothing to fear in death because of what Jesus Christ has done. If you are in Christ, to live is an opportunity to be in fellowship with God and to die is to be more fully in his presence. So let me ask, do you have your receipt? <laughs> right. Do you have your receipt? Do you know? that you are in Christ and that Jesus has died for your sins and been risen, raised for your justification. <clears throat> don't let the concerns of life, don't let the distractions of life keep you from focusing on what is of greatest importance. Don't fear death, don't deny death, don't sentimentalize death. Focus on Jesus. Run to Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. So, the resurrection is not just evidence to trust Christ for those who don't know him personally. The resurrection is a source of hope for Christians. It is a confirmation. It is our receipt that, that he has died for our sins. And it is a source of hope that uh, we need not fear death. Be encouraged. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for extending your grace to us. We thank you for uh, sending your son to die in our place and raising him up from the dead for our justification. Lord Jesus, we thank you for accepting that Good Friday assignment of living a perfect life and then dying in our place. We thank you and praise you for that. We rejoice in your resurrection. May we be shaped, even today, by uh, the promise of eternal life. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.